Who Killed Paul Guillard? Episode 1 The Civil War Never Came to an End. The story begins in the early 1960s at the Agence France Presse Bureau in New York City, 50 Rockefeller Plaza. La nouvelle devait parvenir quelques minutes plus tard à l'Agence France Presse, en plein cœur de New York, dans Rockefeller Plaza. In 1957, French filmmaker Jean-Pierre Melville shot a movie called Two Men in Manhattan, a detective story in which an AFP reporter and photographer team up to investigate a missing person case. In its opening minutes, we glimpse a fictional AFP office. AFP New York office, yes. Who's calling? Just a minute. It's for you. Every cliché from a 1950s newsroom seems to be concentrated in those shots. Reporters and copy editors with loosened ties and cigarettes dangling from their mouths, the editor-in-chief wearing a plastic eye shed as he reads the wire, secretaries with cat-eye glasses and short-sleeved knitted tops carry papers and answer phones through a sea cloud of smoke. It turns out that the movie wasn't that far off. When I finally managed to find a photo taken at AFP's real New York City bureau, it looked a lot like its movie version. The black and white photograph shows a reporter named Paul Guillard sitting at his desk reading copy. He has a pipe and his face is partly hidden behind the smoke. His shirt sleeves are rolled up. He wears a pair of then fashionable Clubmaster glasses and printouts of a dozen wire stories are pinned to the wall behind him. Guillard, then 30, was a tall Franco-Brit with a beard and a strong British accent. He started as a reporter at the age of 19, covering the 1948 Olympic Games in London and eventually joined AFP's English service at its Paris headquarters. In late September 1962, Guillard was at his desk at the bureau when the news broke. After an 18-month court battle, James Meredith was going to be enrolled at the University of Mississippi, becoming the first African-American to be admitted to Ole Miss amid fierce opposition. And that's where our tale starts. I'm sure Mississippi was the poorest state in the nation. It had the highest percentage of African Americans, and it had a terrible history of repression of African Americans. Hank Klibanov, co-author of The Race Beat and the host of the podcast Buried Truth, brings us to Oxford, Mississippi. And by 1960, the threat that many white people felt from black people, much of it imaginary, had reached a fever pitch. The United States Supreme Court had ordered the end of school segregation, but the states of the South, particularly at the leadership of those states, were locked arm in arm to resist that United States Supreme Court decision. And they believed that under no circumstances would they ever have to bend to the federal power. Kathleen Wickham, a journalism teacher at the University of Mississippi and the author of We Believe We Were Immortal, takes us to the old myth of 1962. James Meredith waged his battle for 18 months in the courts 
the state segregationist political leaders were opposed to his enrollment and used whatever legal and not-so-legal methods to block his admission. But he persevered. He had a vision, and he was going to break the back of white segregation or white power in Mississippi. By the time James Meredith tries to enroll at the University of Mississippi, several other states have had to give in and relent to the federal pressure to desegregate. And over in Mississippi, Ross Barnett, the governor, when he ran for office, everyone knew that they were voting for someone who would resist at all costs. James Meredith was uh, an interesting fellow. He was in his 20s. He'd already gone to college two years at a a historically black university, Jackson State University. Straight out of high school, he'd gone to the Air Force. He was a quiet person. He was out to get one thing, and that was an education. And he was at first admitted because they didn't know that he was black, but (laughs) once they found out, The registrar for the institutions of higher learning in Mississippi said, whoa, 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 wait, 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 no, no. This is an error on our part. And then they concocted a reason to keep him out by saying that he had some conviction on his record, that he was guilty of something, which he wasn't. What they claimed was that even though he owned land in one county, he was registered to vote in another. Well, that's quite legal. Many people own land in one county, but vote in another. As long as you're only registered in one county, that's all that matters. But they concocted that as a reason to turn him away. But he decided to stay with it and to try to get in. And ultimately, the federal courts ruled that University of Mississippi had to let him in. That didn't stop the state from, at the highest level, the governor, from resisting. In 1962, student Sidna Brower was the editor of the Mississippian, the university's daily newspaper. I uh, grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, which is pretty much on the border with Mississippi. My mother's family was from Mississippi, so that's where I ended up in college. In Mississippi, there were a number of black people who lived on the back part of my grandparents' farm. And in fact, my great-grandfather had given uh, the blacks some land for a cemetery, and and that still exists today. Well, my father, who uh, grew up in Kentucky, had always said that, you know, you don't judge a person by the color of their skin or their religion or where they live. And so I guess I was brought up with a fairly open mind, Uh, although where I went to high school in those days was a segregated school. Meredith was not part of uh, an organization or he was just like acting as an individual. Well, that's true. At the same time, I want to say that he had great help from the field secretary for the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People in Mississippi, a man who is himself historically important, Medgar Evers. And Mr. Evers had been trying to help Mr. Meredith to matriculate at Ole Miss. I think the reason that some of the white people felt the way they did was being white and being educated at the state university was about the only thing they had going for them. 
because I think they might have been fearful if blacks were allowed into the university, then uh, there would be no difference. Paul Guillard happened to be working on a Sunday, I think, in place of someone else who couldn't come in or maybe because they were short-staffed. They said, you know, we need to get you down to Ole Miss, to Oxford, Mississippi. There's a big story brewing there. And, you know, he loved the big story. And so this was not unusual for him to go into a situation like this. He connects with a photographer, Sammy Shulman. I think to myself, Sammy Shulman? I've never heard of him. But Michel Noyas who is today 91, was the head of the AFP photo department 50 years ago. He might have known Schulman. Yeah, I knew Sammy Schulman. He was a war correspondent with the American Army during the D-Day landings in 1944. He spoke a weird French. Uh, he spoke in slang all the time. He couldn't say a sentence without saying slang, and he learned his French when he was with the American army in France. And how was he physically? Do you remember? Schulman wasn't very tall, he had gray hair, and he always knew how to get around. And what was the work of a photographer in New York at the time? He covered all subjects that could be interesting to European countries and to French clients. We could ask him for any photo, and he always managed to find them. And this was Roosevelt, right? We were going through it. It doesn't have caption on that. Mm. It is Roosevelt, right? We are here in AFP Paris, in the archives, in the basement of AFP. Don Emmert, you're a photographer for AFP. You're working at the New York office where Sami Schulman was doing the same job as you do 60 years ago, almost. Yeah, it sounds like it was a fairly similar kind of coverage. I mean, a lot of politics and uh, any news that was going on. Uh, we still cover the East Coast stories all the way north to Canada. Cecile, who was taking care of the, of the archives, found a few pictures that were taken by Sammy Schulman in the 60s. So the first one we've got is John Kennedy, 21st of January 1961. I think this is actually the uh, inauguration because it's on the steps of the Capitol building. And it looks very similar to positions that we would shoot the inauguration from. It's an elevated position, maybe uh, 75 meters from the stairs where the president is sworn in. They look like uh, six by six, uh, we call it two and a quarter uh, camera. It's pretty light. He even managed to get accredited to the White House, which was difficult and rare at the time. So Schulman was the first one to be accredited to the White House from AFP? Every once in a while he would come to France, and it was always a pleasure to see him. He knew all the best restaurants in Paris. <laughs> These are truly amazing to me pictures of President Kennedy and his wife and uh, a newborn, JFK Jr. It looks like he's being baptized. Date on this one is, uh, it's December 10th, 1960. Those are truly historic and amazing photographs. Uh, Shulman's names on both of those. There's, a, there's another photograph here uh, without any information on it, but it's uh, 
looks like Jackie O and John F. Kennedy, you know, walking down the street uh, with a crowd of people. But yeah, these photographs are uh, amazing with, with JFK Jr. When I moved to New York and uh, John Kennedy Jr. got involved uh, in the spotlight every once in a while, uh, he was going to be a rising star. And then he had a tragic death. But we covered him from time to time in New York City and then uh, had the unfortunate assignment of covering his death. Was there a journalist who knew Guillard and was still alive 57 years on? François Pelou, a famed AFP reporter who covered the assassination of President Kennedy in 1963, was based at the agency's New York bureau at the same time as Guillard. When I managed to finally call him, his wife answered that her husband, then 94, had just returned from the hospital and was too tired to be interviewed. Three days later, she sent me a text message. François is ready to talk to you. Call in 20 minutes to ask a few questions. I went into the studio, closed the door, and turned on my recorder. Je me demandais si vous aviez connu Paul Guillard. Did you know Paul Guillard? Oui. Yes. I was in New York when Paul Guillard was transferred there. Il venait de Londres. He came from London with a very strong English accent, a tweed jacket, and clothes that didn't look American at all. Do you remember when he went to Mississippi? Could you have gone there? Vous auriez pu, vous, aller faire ce reportage It was me who was supposed to go. But Lagrange, the AFP boss at the time, decided to send me on another story that had been planned already. And he sent Paul Guillard to do the story on Meredith. I remember when he left in the early afternoon for Oxford. His clothes weren't at all adapted to the weather there. His tweed clothes and the heat. Paul was actually a copy editor in New York, and they were short-staffed. And they said, do you want to go to Mississippi? So he got on a plane to Atlanta and then another plane to Jackson, the state capitol. And along the way, a flight attendant asked him where he was going, and he said something about, what was his, his how did he phrase it? I'm going to pose as a Kentucky colonel, cover this thing with a mint julep in my hand. Which was kind of an interesting comment that he was going to be elegant and above board, I guess, observe it. But he also said something to Sammy that... 100 years. It'll take 100 years to deal with it. 
And so they go to Jackson, and there's a rally in front of the governor's mansion, which he covers. And he goes to the headquarters of what's called the White Citizens Council and says, can I use your phone? No cell phones back then. If you were traveling, you had to find a pay phone or somebody who would lend you a phone. Well, that came back to haunt him because some of the segregationists said, well, Paul was really one of us. No, there's the only office open on a Sunday afternoon with a phone. Then he called in his last story from Jackson, where he said, Jackson, Mississippi, September 30th, 1962. It's difficult to believe one is in the very center of the gravest constitutional crises that the United States has known since the War of the Secession. One realizes it with a certain terror, only at the moment when the mob in the street, suddenly serious, intones Dixie, the vibrant hymn of the old Confederacy. One has to hear also the shouts when from the windows the spokesman of the White Citizens Council proclaims, don't let America rejoin Africa, or further, a black America will lose its greatness. It is only in one of those moments that one grasps the gap of a century between Washington and the Southern Irredentists. The Civil War never came to an end. The South will rise again, proclaim the posters pasted on the walls and on the automobile bumpers. The mob sings and laughs under the hot October sun, and from the first minute one realizes that this mob is completely unconscious of the enormity of its gesture, of its repercussions, and the interests which it excites throughout the whole world. I read that the day before there was this football game where the governor came. Um... Yes. In fact, I was there, and it was in Jackson. Ross Barnett was not a very popular governor. In fact, he didn't even come to the football games because he would often get tomatoes thrown at him. However, that day, because he was saying that he would not allow James Meredith to enter the university, he sort of suddenly became a hero to some of the people, and they were cheering him. And then little did we know that that was when the next day would be when the federal marshals were coming on campus. Let me just broaden the lens a little bit to say that the state of Mississippi was in a frenzy, and they had been whipped into a frenzy by their political leadership, by the newspapers in the state. You know, the leading two newspapers in Jackson, Mississippi, the Clarion Ledger and the Daily News, were just whipping people into a frenzy with their hysterical editorials, their hysterical news coverage. Uh, the, the afternoon newspaper ran an editorial that was a song that they composed. And basically, the <laughs> it's comical in retrospect. Uh, it wasn't at the time, but the lyrics are, never, 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 never. There were some editorialized in favor of Meredith, including the daily newspaper of the student body of the University of Mississippi, the Daily Mississippian. They completely thought that James Meredith ought to be allowed in and there was no rational justification. But for the most part, it was, you know, the governor reveled in the support that he felt he was getting. It was like he was getting this uh, ego statistical high from 
showing up in public and railing against Meredith and against black people and, and against the federal government. Governor, this is the president speaking. Yes, sir. Uh, now, it's, uh, I know that your feeling about uh, the uh, law of Mississippi and the fact that uh, you don't want to carry out that court order. What we really want to have from you, though, is some understanding about whether the state police will maintain law and order. We understand your feeling about the court order and your yeah. disagreement with it. But what we're concerned about is uh, how much violence is going to be and what kind of uh, action we'll have to take to prevent it. And I'd like to get assurances from you about that the state police down there will take positive action to maintain law and order. Then we'll, we'll know what we have to do. Take, they'll take positive action, Mr. President, to maintain law and order as best we can. And now how we'll good is... We'll have 220 highway patrolmen. Right. And they'll absolutely be unarmed. Right. Another one of them will be armed. Well, no, but the problem is, well, what can they do to maintain law and order and prevent the gathering of a mob and uh, action taken by the mob. What can they do? Can they stop that? Well, they'll do their best to. They'll do everything in their power to stop it. This is almost absurd what happens. Ross Barnett, in the days leading up to this thing and in the hours leading up to this thing, knowing that he's going to having a face-off with uh, James Meredith, uh, wants to face off with Meredith with U.S. Marshals standing by Meredith, and he wants the Marshals to pull out their guns on him. And President Kennedy and Robert Kennedy say, what? why Why do you want them to pull guns? He said, because if I'm going to back down, I want it to look like I did it facing, you know, the barrel of a pistol, of multiple pistols. And then they traveled north about two hours to Oxford. When visiting the town of Oxford in Mississippi, you can't miss Rowan Oak, a Greek revival building that was the house of the writer William Faulkner. He added the U apparently upon joining the Royal Air Force in Canada. Um, he falsed a British citizenship and added a U to his name, thinking that would be more convincing and make him appear more European. Um, William Faulkner lived there his almost his entire life. He died, unfortunately, in July of 1962. He died. So he was not alive during this riot in September. He recognized that change was going to come. He hoped that it would not be painful, but he also felt that it would be painful for everybody involved. But he took no advocate's role. Oh, did Oxford town look like at that time? Well, Oxford was a sleepy southern town, you know, with a courthouse in the town square and typical in many ways. And the white people had a pretty good life and the black people had a pretty bad life but it, it was a little bit different in that it had a university there, and young people did think differently from older people. And by the time I got back to the campus on Sunday, uh, the marshals had surrounded the Lyceum building. The town of Oxford was building up to be a true battleground the, on the night before James Meredith was to enroll. All just falls apart when the rioters show up. I had to get back. Uh, because, as you say, as editor, I needed to do something. Um, and eventually I was able to get to get back. And to see the Lyceum, I say, surrounded by federal marshals and people chanting at them and then later throwing rocks and Molotov cocktails, 
was not only frightening, but very disturbing of, you know, how could this be happening here, not only in our country, but right here on on my campus. And it was almost 8 p.m., they had the radio on, and President Kennedy had just gone on the air to say, all is quiet, it's working. Mr. James Meredith is now in residence on the campus of the University of Mississippi. This has been accomplished thus far without the use of National Guard or other troops. And it is to be hoped that the law enforcement officers of the state of Mississippi and the federal marshals will continue to be sufficient in the future. What Kennedy didn't know, as he walked down to the sound booth, is that the riot had broken out, just literally. And so while he is saying all is calm on the University of Mississippi campus, the tear gas was being thrown. Americans are free and short to disagree with the law, but not to disobey it. For any government of laws and not of men, no man, however prominent or powerful, and no mob, however unruly or boisterous, is entitled to defy a court of law. And Paul turned to Sammy and said, um, Well, we might go and see what's going on and clean it up. You follow the story to the end. It's what you do as a journalist. So they parked their car outside the campus. and The riot on campus was fueled by the arrival of many hundreds and hundreds of people from off campus, not university students. Many of them came over from Alabama. And it's hard to know if Paul Giard's appearance made him a target He was a joyful type, and he had this instinct from everything I know to go to the heart of the story. We all know as journalists, you know, when you approach a scene that could be contentious, that you you take steps. He was traveling with his photographer, Sammy Shulman, and they split to go around the area. I'll meet you back here in 10 minutes. Let's see what's going on. Paul never made it back. He had circled around based probably on his military experience because he had served in the British Army in Cyprus. And so I spoke with two reporters who saw him that night. First, Flip Schulke, who was a photographer for Life magazine, and then a man named Clark Porteous, who was a reporter for the Memphis Press Cemetery. And Clark had grown up in New Orleans in a French-speaking family and was quite pleased to run into somebody at the University of Mississippi campus while this riot is going on and was able to converse with uh, Guillard in French. And he said, and after we finished talking, Guillard just sort of kept moving along through the crowd, going to find the heart of the story, to find people to interview. Keep in mind just that the whole area there was clogged with the smoke of tear gas, causing people to gag and throw up. It was a photographer by the name of Flip Schultz, and he was hiding in the bushes. He was hiding in the bushes. He had taken shelter, and he called out to Paul, and Paul said, No, I'm not worried. I was in Cyprus. And um, he was probably the last person who talked to Paul before he was murdered. The next that anyone knows about him is when a student stumbles over his body, not really at the heart of the riot, but a ways down the path between you know an academic building and a, and a woman's dorm. How he got there, what led him there, I don't know, but he was on the ground and dead and shot, according to the autopsy, at close range, like 
the gun was held one foot away from his body. Where's the attorney general there? He'll call you back. Well, let me just give you a message for him. Okay. Would you tell him that a reporter whose name is Paul Gihard, G-U-I-H-A-R-D, was killed in Oxford just now. His body was found with a bullet in the back next to a women's dormitory. And the reason we know the time thing is because of Sammy Shulman. Sammy knows what time they got to campus. Otherwise, you know, it would have been not so precise. I was in our dark room showing a photographer our steps, which were slightly different than what he was used to in uh, developing film. There was a knock on the door. You know, I commented, don't open it, or something like that. And the uh, student on the other side said, a journalist or reporter has been killed. And the photographer said, oh, my God, that's my man. So he left to go identify Giard's body. So he was a Sami Shulman? Yes. I don't even know if I knew his name at the time because, you know, people were in and out and I was trying to help them plus trying to do my job. And I will always say the word murdered, not killed. Shot in the back from a foot away. This was The Civil War Never Came to an End, the first episode of Who Killed Paul Giard podcast, with Kathleen Wickham, Hank Klebanoff, Sidna Brower, Michel Nouya, Francois Pelou, and Don Emmert. The voice of Paul Giard was done by Ludovic Vickers. Text editing by Jana Dlugi. Sounds of Roanoke were recorded by Jeffrey Reed. The sound archives came from the JFK Library and from the film Two Men in Manhattan. At Agence France Presse in Paris, Cécile Cadell for the file pictures, Fred Bourget and David Laurie for graphic design and illustrations. Who Killed Paul Guillard was produced by Laurent Calfala. In the second and final episode, Beneath the Mississippi Moon, Somebody Better Investigate Soon, a Bob Dylan song and a return to a 40-year-old mystery.